game. Well, I'm pleased to be back and moving forward with a series that we started last week called A Biblical Theology of Work. I trust you were here last week, the vast majority of you, to hear us get started on that. If you didn't, it would be worth your while to to go to our website and go to the video section and you can watch that sermon because it would be important just setting foundations for where we're going to be going over the next um, month and a half or thereabouts. But as we continue forward this morning, I just want to begin with a question. I asked you a lot of questions last week and those were designed to, to make you a little bit introspective and also to provide a wide enough net to hopefully sweep everybody in that uh, this sermon series is going to relate to you uh, directly in one form or fashion. But let me ask you another question this morning as we get started, and it'll really set the stage for what I want to talk to you about this morning. And the question is this, a very simple one, and that is, what is work? Just a very, very simple question. What is work? We talked last time about that you spend a, a considerable portion of your life working Well, what is work? And in his book called A Proverbs-Driven Life, author Anthony Salvaggio defines work in the following way. And I think it's a pretty good definition, so until I find a better one, we're going to operate with this one. And he says, any set of tasks to be performed in pursuit of a particular goal. Any set of tasks to be performed in pursuit of of a particular goal. That's what work is. And that's why this, this uh, sermon series relates to everybody. It's not just about what you do nine to five and generate a paycheck. And in fact, by leaving money out of his equations, Savagio enables us to see really uh, into the whole question of work. He gets beyond the money question and he gets down to something that is far more important, far more profound. And what he helps us to see is that work is not simply cash in exchange for labor. It is not just cash in exchange for labor. In fact, he rightly observes that, uh, that money actually has nothing to do with work, at least in a direct way. It is, it is merely a byproduct of our work. But unfortunately, for, for most of us, to, to one degree or another, we equate the two so closely that, it's, uh, that we put work and money together in the same basket. And we need to, we need to pull that apart. We need, to, we need to have a biblical understanding of work. So Baggio, he, he rightly observes that many, many people work and don't get paid. So money cannot be essential to what it means to work because you work and you don't get paid. And he, he gives these kinds of examples. Artists. Artists will work a very long time in hope, perhaps, of being paid for their work, but it is money. It's not what drives them. Furthermore, college students pay money in order to be able to work. So they will pay someone else for the privilege of working. At-home moms work And they do not do so for rewards that are financial. So it is not a a correct understanding of work to tie money and work closely together. 
In fact, many, many of you spend countless hours working at various hobbies without any consideration at all about money. You do not do what you do because you're going to make a financial gain from it. You work for one reason. You love it. You work at the hobbies that you work at because you love it. You love it. It provides great satisfaction to your soul. It provides satisfaction to your soul. Why? Why is it that work provides or can provide such great satisfaction to the human soul? And that's really what I want to get at with you this morning. Pastor Tim Keller, in a very good book entitled Every Good Endeavor, writes the following. And it's, it's kind of provocative, but I think it's very insightful. He says, and I quote, Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. He goes on. Work is so foundational to our makeup, in fact, that it is one of the few things we can take in significant doses without harm. That's a very insightful statement. We can take in significant doses work without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but directs us to the opposite ratio. Six days of work, one day of rest. To work is foundational to what it means to be human. To what it means to be human. Dorothy Sayers, a a British novelist, wrote uh, an essay entitled Why Work? It was written in 1942, and it was at the height of World War II, and she wrote the following in that uh, essay, a very uh, significant essay, by the way, and I commend it to you. Find it. You can get it online and read it. It's, again, very thoughtful, very provocative, very insightful. But she says this in that essay, quote, Work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. Not what one does to live, but what one lives to do. To work is to be human. To not work, to be denied the opportunity to work, is to be denied something that is fundamental and foundational to what it means to be a human. So this morning, this is what I want to do with you. In the time we have available, I want to look with you at three reasons. Three reasons why work is not something we do for money, but is a critical component of what it means to be created in the image of God. It is a critical component, work that is, of what it means to be created in the image of God. Three reasons. We'll work through them together. First reason Number one, God works for the sheer joy of it. God works for the sheer joy of it. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. 
In Genesis chapter 1, Moses narrates the account of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And in verse 31, we have a summary statement of God's six days, six, by the way, literal 24-hour days of creation. And we have this amazing summary statement in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. God looked on his work, and he pronounced it very good. It gave tremendous satisfaction and joy to the divine heart to have engaged in the creation work which he engaged in. And I call it work, and this is, uh, this is where the point I want to make here is because Moses calls it work in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is, is a, 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 um, an extrapolation or an extension of the details of the creation of Adam and Eve in that sixth day. And so there in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we find the use of the word work. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. That's a summary of those first six days. By the seventh day, God completed, and notice it here, his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. The use there, Moses uses the ordinary Hebrew word for work. He is speaking about God's creative activity in the six days, and he refers to it as work. It is work that God did. It is work that, that was for his good pleasure. It was thus forever, and this is the point, it forever stamped this activity of work as something that is inherently pleasurable and good. Work is inherently pleasurable. Work is inherently good. Now, it's interesting. We can go over here, and I'll do that for you. Turn you to to Exodus chapter 20, because the word appears again. The Hebrew word for work appears again in Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. And there it describes man's work, same Hebrew word that is used in chapter 2 of the Genesis to speak of God's creative activities, is now used to speak of man's work. Verse 9, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments here, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Same word. But in the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male, or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Same word for work. God works, man works. And that's the connection that is so important. Because what it does is it ties our work to God's work. It ties our work to God's work. Because work is something that that God engaged in, and he engaged in it prior to the fall, right? The fall doesn't happen until chapter 3. Therefore, we should understand that that work is a good thing. A good thing. 
and not a necessary evil. We spoke of that last time. We can become deluded in our thinking that somehow work is a punishment or a consequence of the evil in this world when nothing could be further from the truth. Work is in and of itself inherently good, inherently pleasurable, inherently a divine activity in which we, as made in the image of God, follow Him in it. It is an activity in which we imitate our Creator. When you work, you are imitating your Creator. So, You're at home working in one of those hobbies, giving yourself to it with no thought of money whatsoever, but you are investing yourself in it. You are doing something divine. It is a divine activity in which you are engaging. Now, God rested, we're told back in Genesis, uh, again, back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, we're told that God rested after the sixth day. That is, that after his six days of of creation, he rested. There There was a cessation of his creation activity. But God is not idle. God was not idle. He is not idle now. He has ceased the creative activity that characterized the first six days, but he continues to work even in this present time. So work is not something that God once did that gave him pleasure. It is something God is continually doing, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, in the past, in the present, and into the future. We call it providence. We call God's work today providence. It is the means by which God guides, directs, maintains, sustains, heals, shapes, replenishes his creation. It is all of the many things that God is doing, often unseen by us, in which he is continually working in his creation. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5 and verse 17 when he was being accused by the Pharisees for healing on a Sabbath day. And they were saying that you have violated the law of Moses because you are working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. When God rested in the seventh day, he ceased his creative activity. He did not cease work altogether. God is continuing to work, Jesus says, and he will continue to work. Now Psalm 145 verse 15, we won't turn you there, you can look on your own. But there the psalmist says that God provides food for people. God provides food for people. And it's a, it's a great illustration of providence. When God provides the food that we eat, he doesn't do it by having it descend out of the heavens and, and just appear on the ground. He did that once, didn't he? For a period of 40 years, it was called manna. And once the the people of Israel entered into the promised land, the manna ceased to fall from heaven. But God continues to provide food for his people, not by dropping it out of heaven, but as Martin Luther, the great reformer, noted, he does it providentially through the work of the farmer, through the work of the farmer. So when the farmer works his field, he is working in cooperation with God and is the means and mechanism by which God feeds those whom he has created. So the first reason is that God works for the the sheer 
joy of it. God works for the sheer joy of it. Secondly, God created us to join him in his work. This is the way we're going with it. God works for the sheer joy of it. God created us to join him in his work. To join him in his work. Now back into chapter 1 of Exodus again. Picking it up in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And on it goes. God created mankind. Male and female, he created them. And he created them in his image, it says. We were created in the image of God. Now, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, it means many things. But one of the significant things that it means is that we were created to subdue and to rule over the creation. We were created to subdue and to rule over the creation. It is, it is described here as one of the purposes for which God created the human race. And the words here, rule and subdue, are very strong words. They are very, very strong words. And, and they are words that denote force and the assertion of our will. To rule and to subdue is an active, forceful kind of activity. It's incumbent in those words. They are the means by which humanity is to continue God's work. Notice in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Formless and void. There are, the balance of, of chapter 1, the, the six days of creation, are God filling and forming the creation that he spoke into existence. He is the filling and the forming of that creation. And then at the end of the sixth day, God delegates that activity over to those who were created in his image. And he now makes it our privilege, our responsibility to continue his work of forming and filling the world which he has made. That means, check this out, that means that you and I are in partnership with God. You and I are in partnership with the Creator, God. Now, I don't know about you, but just to think about that raises the, the understanding of humanity to an incredible level. We are not an accident of biology. We are not some sort of goo-to-you kind of creation thinking. 
That we have been made specifically in the very image of the one true God. And we now are in partnership with him, carrying on the very work that he has begun. Now, beloved, that brings a whole noble nature to the work in which we are engaged. Now, we can see this worked out in chapter 2. Or illustrated, that's probably a better way. In uh, chapter 2, there are going to be all kinds of unintentional puns that will flow through this. Sorry about that. I'm not that clever. But we can see it, we can see it illustrated here in Genesis chapter 2. God planted the Garden of Eden. That was his work. And then God took Adam, whom he had created, right? Formed of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. And God placed him, the text tells us, verse 8, chapter 2, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Adam was not formed in the garden. Adam was formed outside the garden. And God placed him into the garden. Verse 15, same chapter. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden for a purpose. And the purpose was to cultivate it and keep it. To cultivate it and to keep it. God created and then he delegated in partnership to Adam the continuation of the work of forming and filling. Therefore, they became, and I think this is a legitimate thing to say, they became partners. They became partners in the enterprise of work. God's the owner. Adam is the steward. The steward of the creation. He is the one who manages the creation, in this case, the garden, on behalf of its owner. Adam does not own the garden He is not a co-owner of the garden. It is God's alone. The creation is God's alone. But Adam was created to be in partnership with the owner in order to, to cultivate and keep the garden as a steward of the creation of God. Now that is significant, beloved, because you and I are stewards as well. We are stewards of the creation of God. We do not own it. But we have been delegated in partnership with God, a junior partnership, if you like. We have been delegated significant authority over God's creation. Thus, those strong terms, rule and subdue. We see it furthermore illustrated in in the change between chapters 1 and 2 here of Genesis. In chapter 1, God creates and he names, right? So God creates and he names things. He he creates light and he calls it light and thus was its name. He creates day and night. He calls it day and night. He creates heaven. He creates earth. He creates plants. He creates classes of animals. He even creates Adam and he names them all. And the naming indicates authority. But what's really interesting is that in chapter 2, God delegates to Adam the authority to name. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he, that is the man, would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. That was its name. 
And what's significant here is that whatever name Adam chose to apply to this particular species of animals that were brought before him, from that point forward, even God uses the name that Adam chose. God now refers to these things by the name that Adam chose. So you see this kind of partnership idea going on here. It is, this is not a sham. This is not a show. This is real. This is meaningful. This is profound. God chooses to, to live by the names. He doesn't say, now, Adam, that's ridiculous to name that an aardvark. Okay, there is a much better name. No, from henceforth and forevermore, it is an aardvark. And that's what it is. And that continues to this very day. We continue as part of our dominion mandate, as part of what it means to rule and subdue, to name things. To name things. We, we possess that delegated authority. So, the partnership here, it's, it's a real partnership. It's a meaningful partnership. Notice also Adam is not just simply preserving the creation. He's shaping it. He is shaping the creation, and he is doing so by his own imagination. The, the application of his own imagination. Now, let's see. That thing has two humps, and that one has one. So one must be a camel, and one must be a dromedary, right? That is Adam's imagination shaping the creation. Shaping the creation. Now, the divine purpose here is, is typically called by theologians by one of two names. It's, it's typically called either the dominion mandate, the dominion mandate, or sometimes it's called the cultural mandate. Dominion mandate or cultural mandate. That is the authority that has been delegated to Adam and by extension to his descendants, that's us, from God. The dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. And it is the basis, it is the basis of, of all the science that has ever been done. It is the basis of all invention. It is the basis of all medicine. It is the basis of mechanics, of art, music, education, agriculture, and on and on and on. It is the authority to do what we do. We are merely fulfilling the cultural mandate. It is our divine authorization for humanity to extend its influence over all aspects of creation. It is the reason we can build a rocket ship and go to the moon. It is our authority to do so, and implicit within it is the ability to do such things. God gave both the authority and the ability to do these kinds of things. God said, be fruitful, verse 28, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now, when he said that, he, he's commanding something here more than just making babies. This is more than just about making babies. It's not less than that, but it is far more than that. He is, he is mandating in this the, the extension of humanity and culture across the entire realm of creation. The entire realm of creation. So build a bathysphere and go to the deepest portion of the ocean and extend dominion. Build a rocket ship and shoot a a satellite as far out into space as you can and, and probe the limits and extents of the galaxy and the universe. 
peer into the microscope and seek to understand the double helix of DNA and on and on and on. It is all within our purview. All within our purview. Or go out to your garage and get a piece of wood and a saw and a, and a file and a chisel and whatever else you want and create a piece of furniture with it. Or take a piece of cloth and a needle and various colored threads and begin to weave the threads with the needle into the cloth in intricate patterns until you, you come up with a tapestry. Because in doing these things, you are in partnership with God. You are imitating your Creator and you are fulfilling part of what it means to be a human being. To be a human being. It is so liberating. It is so exciting to understand these things. Now, we need to, we need to again be, be aware of something. This mandate was given by God prior to the entrance into the world of sin, death, and decay. It came prior to the entrance of sin, death, and decay into the creation. And why that's important to, to remember is because what it means is that the creation is not our enemy. It is not our enemy to, to be conquered to rule and to subdue, even though they're very strong words. It does not mean that the creation is somehow the enemy that must be trampled down, that must be conquered. Instead, what it means is that the creation is a vast opportunity filled with untapped resources that need to be discovered, that need to be harnessed, that need to be managed, that need to be invested in, in order to bring forth its richest potential. That's what it means to rule and subdue. It means to draw out that which is latent in the very creation of God. God created us to work, to join Him in His work. To join Him in His work. Another illustration for you we can find in the life of Jesus Himself. The life of Jesus illustrates this. In the Incarnation... The Son of God became fully and completely human. Amen? Yet without sin. As such, he was born into a family. He grew up with siblings. He experienced normal growth in in the physical and emotional realms of maturity. He experienced growth in intellect. He experienced growth in religious understanding and devotion to the Father. That is all there in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's what that means. Jesus grew in every way of what it means to be human. Now, as part of his humanity, I think it's instructive to, to note that Jesus worked as a carpenter. He worked as a carpenter. He learned the trade from his father, Joseph. And over time, he occupied himself with the task of being a carpenter, or maybe better said today, a a kind of a cabinet maker or a furniture builder. And he did so until he was 30 years old, according to the text. And then at that age, God called him away from being a carpenter to to a different task. A task that over the next three and a half years in which he would present himself as the Messiah and would ultimately lead to his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, that he might bring salvation. 
to mankind. But it's important to note, it's instructive, I think, to know that Jesus, created to be fully human, worked. Worked. He didn't descend as a holy man. He was born as a carpenter with calloused hands. Beloved, when we work, we engage in God-like activity. When we work, we engage in God-like activity. Not in the sense of God's creative work, because God, even He, is resting from such things, right? But it's the God-like activity of the, of the providential work of forming and filling. Forming and filling. What this means, check it out, what it means is that all legitimate work is an extension of God's work and therefore is a spiritual endeavor. It is a spiritual endeavor. All legitimate work is an extension of God's work and therefore is a spiritual endeavor. You never thought of it that way, I bet, did you? And when you go to work, whatever that work is, you are engaging in a godlike activity that is a spiritual endeavor. What that's going to mean in the weeks to come as we look at, at work is that we're going to understand that how we work is a very important question. It reveals what we believe about God and what we believe about work. God works for the sheer joy of it. Second, God created us to join Him in His work. Third, We'll move quickly here and finish this up. Third, we will work in eternity. We will work in eternity. And that is good news. That is very good news. We've seen that work is part of paradise, right? God introduces it in paradise. And thus it is God's will and good gift to us. And therefore it goes on into eternity. It goes on into eternity. It is not just work here in this life and then coast in the next. Okay? Some sort of cessation of activity in the next. And by the way, if that's what eternal life was, it would be a very boring existence. I can remember as a child, people talked about heaven, and it was somehow, I don't know whether they said it or it was just my foolish notions, but it was somehow this idea of you just floated around with a little harp and you did nothing but sing all day long. And I thought, this is dreadful. I'm not sure I want to go there. But that is not what heaven is about. That is not what eternity has in store for us. What eternity has in store for us is to work. Is to work because to work is to be human. To cease to work in eternity would mean we would have to cease to be human. And that's just not going to happen. Just not going to happen. Listen, when Christ returns... To establish his great millennial kingdom, he says we will rule and reign with him, right? Well, according to the Old Testament prophets, that kingdom, that earthly kingdom, will include the the ownership of private property. But you never thought about that. Micah chapter 4 and verse 4, the prophet says, Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. With no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Check it out. In the millennial kingdom, you're going to sit under your own fig tree. Your own grapevine. Not the government's grapevine. Not your neighbor's grapevine. Your grapevine and your fig tree. And you will be responsible to cultivate 
your own property. Now, you don't own it in an absolute sense. God owns it in the absolute sense, but you own it in the sense of the steward with full authority over it. Now, in exercising this stewardship of the private property during the great millennial kingdom, the prophet Isaiah says something very interesting. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 22, he says that they will enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Isn't that cool? The long enjoy the work of your hands. See, what we'll be missing is all of the frustration that comes as a result of living in a sin-fallen world, right? That makes work so difficult at times. That will be gone, but work itself will regain all that it was meant to be. It's going to be fantastic. And someday, the the prophets tell us that the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ, it will transition into what's called the eternal state. Because Christ's kingdom is is an everlasting kingdom. And so it doesn't ever end. It just merely uh, transitions into the eternal state. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, the apostle Paul says just that. Jesus hands over the kingdom to his father. The millennial kingdom merges into the eternal state. And with it, the ability to work doesn't end. But it continues in service to God for all eternity. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. It's talking about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And his bondservants will, and check it out, serve him. Serve him. They'll work. They're going to work. You're going to work. I'm going to work. Some of the occupations that we presently uh, 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 are involved in may be modified or in some cases, perhaps even cease, but there will be other things to do. People ask, though, well, you know, if we're going to work there, then, then what's it going to look like? What kind of work is it going to be? And the answer is, uh, we don't know with certainty. But I'll tell you this, I think it's going to be a, a very physical kind of work. Just unencumbered, uninhibited by sin. You're going to have all eternity to explore the universe. If that is a thing that is of interest to you, you've always wanted to to travel, right? This is going to be the opportunity to travel of a lifetime. And you're going to have eternity to do it. If you like to build things, if you like to invent things, if you like to write music or poetry or engage in art or sculpture, you're going to have eternity to produce. Can you imagine this? I mean, we have some, some incredibly beautiful works of art, don't we? That have, been, that have been created by, in many cases, fallen humanity, living under the, under the effects of the, of the curse, and yet they produce such amazing things. What will happen when sin has been removed? And all of that creative energy and talent and, and an unlimited opportunity presents itself. Beloved, it is going to be glorious. It is going to be glorious. And you know what? That's the kind of place I want to be. That's the kind of place I want to be. Maybe I actually will learn to play the guitar someday <laughs> in glory. I mean, after all, I'll have forever to work at it. And at the rate I'm going, that's how long it's going to take.
Oh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be exciting. Listen, let's wrap it up here. When we work, check it out. When we work, we glorify God. We glorify God by, by echoing his creativity and his productivity. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, this kind of, this kind of thinking, it's, this is not just merely helpful. This is essential. This is essential thinking. Because what this does is it, it enables us to understand that work has a spiritual significance in every act of work. Therefore, every act of legitimate work, well done, is an act of worship to your God and Creator. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the most amazing gift of work. Thank you that in your wisdom and sovereignty, you created mankind. Male and female, you created them. In the image of God, you created them. And our Father, as the, as the text clearly teaches, a significant piece of what that means to be created in your image is that we are to join you in that task in which you find great joy and delight, and that is to work. Oh Lord, we confess that living in this broken world and with our own sin, there are, there are many times that work doesn't seem as glorious as, as the Scripture portrays it here. But our Father, we need to believe the truth and we need to, to shape our thinking and our behavior by the truth and not by our circumstances. And so we pray, our Father, as we continue with this series and we, and we get to the place where we talk about work as redeemed in Christ, that you would help us to gain a vision, a passion to live as authentically human, bringing great glory to the name of our God and Savior. Amen.